Good morning again. Welcome. Uh, we are now going to turn to God's Word. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm, uh, the 24th chapter. We're going to be uh, returning to our series, um, working through some of the Psalms. Uh, this morning we enter back in, uh, in the 24th Psalm. We finished uh, Psalm 23 back in March, and we've been working our way through Colossians. Uh, it started while we were still not able to gather, but um, we just felt we needed to return to uh, these psalms. So Psalm chapter 24. This is God's word. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be, lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Would you uh, just bow your heads and again pray with me? Father, we come to you in the name of your Son, Jesus, and we ask now that by your Spirit you would speak to us. Show us who you are, and in light of who you are, show us our true nature. And we pray that in the midst of that, you would reveal clearly the worth and the value and the beauty of your son, Jesus Christ. So work in us now by your spirit. Bring forth fruit for your honor and your glory. May your word accomplish that for which it is sent forth this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm sure there probably are very few of us in this room who are unfamiliar with the Amazon logo, right? That, that little uh, smiley face arrow, uh, at least if I believe my kids, and that's, I asked them about this, and they said, yeah, it's a, it's a smiley face arrow. Um, but... While that certainly may create some warm feelings for us, or that's what it's intended to do, I've always actually missed the bigger point of, of that logo until this week. You see, it's actually an arrow underneath the word Amazon that connects the letter A to Z, indicating that uh, Amazon is uh, apparently the all-inclusive resource for your needs and your wants, your one-stop shop, A to Z. And, and uh, I, I've always missed the point of that logo. I, I always wondered, that's such a strange logo, until 
this week. And sometimes in life we, we see something over and over, we hear something over and over, we're familiar with something, but we completely miss the point. We miss the bigger picture of what's going on. And I think it's fair to say that that might be true of some of us when it comes to the Bible, God's Word. Uh, because some of us think that the, the scriptures are full of stories of, of the heroes of faith that we are meant to, um, we're meant to then live out. We're, we're to pattern our lives after uh, those men and, and women. And some of us view the Bible as a book of wisdom, teaching us how to live a, a loving and happy life out in the world. And while those things might be true in, in greater to lesser degrees, they may be true in part, that's not the message of the Bible. If we've read the Bible or if we've listened to God's word in that way, we have missed the point. We've just seen a big smiley face and we've not gotten the message. So what do the scriptures principally teach? That's what the, the Westminster Confession asks and then answers. It says, the scriptures principally teach, this is what they principally teach, what humanity is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of humanity. And that's a perfect outline of this psalm we're looking at this morning, Psalm 24. Who God is, and therefore who we must be in light of that. So the point of this passage is, who God is determines who we must be. So what does this passage say about God? Now, some of you might think, well, this is incredibly uh, uninteresting, or this is an irrelevant question to be asking. But as, as one theologian rightly notes, what comes into our minds when we think about God is actually the most important thing about us. So this is a significant, weighty matter. Who is God? Look at verse one with me. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. So what, what David is saying is that the cosmos, its, its contents, its citizens, they are all belong to God. He has a rightful claim on everything and on everyone. Everything we see, everyone around us, God has a rightful claim to. Why? Look at verse 2. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Why? Because he made it. He designed it. He created it. It's his. And so he has a claim on everything and everyone. And so what we learn at the very outset of this psalm about God is that the Lord is the sovereign creator with claim on and control over the world and its inhabitants, right? And this has implications for us because the Lord is the sovereign creator with a claim on and control over the world and its inhabitants. We can find reassurance in the midst of all the chaos going on around us. It's worth, again, just highlighting the fact that he mentions the seas and the rivers. Why mention the seas and the rivers here? 
David mentions their part in, in creation because they were viewed uh, and, and perceived as this especially chaotic and dangerous part of the world that people couldn't control. And he's singling them out as under God's control. And so in asserting God's control over these often chaotic and often dangerous elements of creation that can quickly bring destruction and ruin to people, David was singing of God's control over things which frighten us, which, which intimidate us, which threaten to harm us. God controls those things. So God's sovereignty over all creation, his claim, his ownership, it should bring us assurance as we walk about our days this week. God's sovereign rule over creation should prompt trust in us and confidence in the midst of the worrying and troubling times. And there are things that are definitely worrying and troubling, but they're not outside of God's sovereign rule and hand and control and his claim. So because the Lord God is the sovereign creator, we can find comfort in chaos. We can trust him in the midst of social unrest. We can uh, rely upon him in the midst of political turmoil. We can trust him in the midst of a medical crisis. We can, we can lean on him in the midst of economic hardship. We can look to him in the midst of relational ruin. The Lord is the sovereign creator with control over and claim on everyone and everything we see. And because that's the case, there's also a responsibility we have. We should uh, recognize our responsibility towards God's world. So we must concern ourselves with the dignity of all people because all people are his, created by him. Everyone. And I wonder if we are, are, are quick to, to listen to, to care for and to stand for those who, who are unprotected and oppressed? Or do we close our ears and our lives to their cries? We must treat God's image bearers, his creation, in a manner that honors their maker. The Lord is the sovereign creator with control over and claim on everyone we see. Uh, secondly, we must also wisely steward all the things we have in our possession because all the things we have in our possession are actually his, right? The earth is the Lord's and all it contains. Your property, your car is not exempt from that. Our homes, our dinner tables, our living rooms, our front porches, our backyards, they are God's. Are we using these things to show his love for those that are his? Our vehicles, our food, our bank accounts, our calendars are his, entrusted to us so that we might care for those that are his. 
The Lord is the sovereign creator with claim on and control over everyone and everything we see. But there's more about God in this psalm. Look at verse 7 through 10 with me. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Notice he describes the one they are to welcome. There's this odd cryptic language that um, David is, in this language, is calling people to willingly and gladly and joyfully um, welcome and receive the Lord, their God. And, And notice the way he describes the one they're to welcome. Five times he calls God the king of glory. The king of glory. Five times. King of perfections, of beauty. He says he is mighty in battle. Look at verse 8. The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. And then the next verse he calls him the Lord of hosts. Literally, Lord of angel armies. So we're getting this picture of of a, a glorious, unstoppable warrior king who comes to deliver his people, to provide them freedom. And this is who God is. He is unparalleled in power, unmatched in authority, unequaled in greatness, and yet he remembers his people. And he stops and he stoops to deliver them from their oppression. He rescues them and gathers them to himself. And so David calls for our our heads and our hearts and our spirits to be lifted up with joy despite the circumstances of our family, the troubles in our community, the uncertainties of our world, because the Lord is the king of glory who delivers his people. So thus far, we've acknowledged that the God, the Lord, is the sovereign creator who is the king of glory delivering his people. It brings deliverance to his people. He is a God with limitless power and pity, with, with uh, unbounded control over the world and unbounded compassion for those that are his. And so our desire should be to draw near to this one, to to receive his salvation, to receive his blessings, to know him, and to enjoy him. But this is an unspeakably amazing God. There can be no casual, hey, God, let's get together. Let's do life together. Hey, hey God, uh, me and you, No, surely there are requirements for knowing him, for drawing near to him, for drawing close to him. Who can get close to him? And that's what the psalmist asks in verse 3. Look at it with me. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? It was uh, some years ago now that I discovered that musicians and actors have these awesome things called celebrity riders. I don't know if you've ever heard about them. 
but they're basically demands you have to meet if you want this particular performer to come to your event and be at your location. Let me give you an example. Mariah Carey, most of you know Mariah Carey. All I Want for Christmas is You, I think that's her song, whatever. Her dressing room needs to be set to exactly 75 degrees. She needs white drapes all around the room and a slim three-seat three sofa with no busy patterns on the sofa. The room must contain two vases, vases of white roses. It has to have six red and six white wine glasses. It also has to have four Joe Malone vanilla candles. Like Yankee candles, not gonna cut it. Four Joe Malone vanilla candles. She must have three bottles of chilled Chardonnay, regular and Diet Cokes, Fiji water, warm fried chicken, three whole lemons, honey, sugarless gum, and protein drinks. If you want Mariah Carey to come to your event, these demands must be met. And it's wild. You should look it up sometime. Many celebrities have even more wild and excessive demands than these. Van Halen had to have a bowl of M&Ms with all the brown M&Ms removed. These are, the certain, these are the conditions that you must meet if you want them in your presence. How much more might the demands be for one, the one described in this passage, than whom nothing greater can be conceived? How much greater the demands? Who qualifies to be near him? Who can ascend to his holy hill? Who can enter the Lord's holy place? Who's gonna stand in his holy place? And for some of us, that seems like an absurd question because after all, our conception of God is that he's this generally lenient, loving God who in the end welcomes everyone regardless of their faults and foibles, right? That's God. But that's a corrupted view of God. That's not the God that reveals himself in Scripture. So what are God's requirements? He tells us in verse 4, look at it. Verse 4, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, these are the demands. This is God's celebrity rider. David tells us that those who, who desire to be accepted by the Lord, invited to his house, must be those whose actions, clean hands, and character, pure heart, are without flaws. So not only must our activity in the world be pure, our motives and our intentions and our thoughts must be clean and pure. David continues that only those completely loyal to the Lord, exhibiting complete trust in him, look at that phrase in verse four, who does not lift up his soul to what is false. You're not trusting in other things, you're trusting completely in the Lord, exhibiting complete loyalty to him. And those completely loyal to the truth, those who don't swear deceitfully, only those people will be eligible for receiving God's blessing and God's salvation. So we learn that God's perfectly reasonable and just celebrity rider is perfection of heart. 
perfection of hands. Simply put, the Lord demands purity and perfection for those who want to be his people, who want to enter his heaven and be with him in his presence forever. Perfection, cleanliness, purity. I, I hope this is somewhat of an unsettling, disturbing thought for us. Because if you're honest, your life like mine falls woefully short of God's demands. Right? We stand, you stand condemned by God's law. God's rightful and righteous laws have gone unmet in our lives. This week, we've possibly seethed in anger at a, a coworker. We've been puffed up with pride about our spiritual maturity or our, our political convictions. We've been gripped by fear this week, showing our trust is in, not in God, but in something else. We've lifted up our soul to what is false. We've been gripped by fear this week over the upcoming election, over the economy, Maybe about a relationship we're in. We've failed to trust God for our future. We've lifted up our soul to what is false, to something else, and we've placed our hope in that. We've been consumed by covetousness this week as we've expressed discontentment about the job God has provided for us or the spouse that God has gifted us with. We've looked at sexually explicit images. We've not loved our neighbor. We do not have pure hearts. We do not have clean hands. But those are God's just requirements. So what hope? Is there any hope of entering God's heaven and enjoying his blessedness, receiving his blessings and salvation? Charles Spurgeon encourages us this way. He says, look then to Christ who has already climbed that holy hill. He has entered as the forerunner of all those who trust him. Follow in his footstep and repose upon his merit. He rides triumphantly into heaven and you shall ride there too if you trust in him. Friend, on your own, you have no hope, zero, of entering God's holy place. Nilch, zilch, nada, nothing, no hope. But there is one, and only one, with clean hands and a pure heart. In John 6, 38, Jesus declared this, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. He was completely submitted to the Father. And then Hebrews 4, 15 bears this testimony about that, that expression of Jesus. It says, he was tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. He followed through on that. You say, that's great for Jesus, but I'm still sinful. I'm still stained by impurity. I don't have clean hands and a pure heart. Well, here's the good news, friend. We can receive his righteousness, the purity, 
and righteousness of Jesus and be qualified to, for entrance to God's holy place through faith in his sinless life and his substitutionary death. Faith is counted as righteousness. Through faith, God's spirit unites us to his son and that righteousness is credited to us. It's like a bank credit. It comes right into our account and all of a sudden we have abounding righteousness to meet this requirement of clean hands and a pure heart. His perfect life was lived for us. His death that he died, he died for those who would trust in him. So when the Father looks at us, if we've trusted in Christ, what he sees is the clean hands and the pure heart of his son. He doesn't see our week this past week. He doesn't see our mourning this morning. He sees his beloved son in whom he delights. So friend, if you've been relying on your own goodness or virtue or effort, repent and turn from that vile and that vain, foolish hope and trust in God's Son. Trust in Christ alone for clean hands and a pure heart. And this is the beautiful thing. Brother and sister in Christ, as the spirit of our king dwells in us by faith, guess what? We have an ever ever-increasing craving and capacity to serve our king in obedience. More and more, we actually have clean hands and a pure heart because the spirit of God dwells within us. The spirit of God will give us a new heart and transform us, conforming us little by little to the king with clean hands and a pure heart. God's spirit will give us a craving and a capacity to love God and to serve our neighbor. Friend, who God is determines who we must be. Because the Lord is the sovereign creator king who delivers his people, only those who receive him as such with clean hands and pure hearts will share in his blessings. See, God's glorious nature demands one with clean hands and hearts, and he himself has provided that in the person and work of Christ Jesus. May we trust in him and rejoice in him this morning and forever. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, I pray that by your spirit, through your word, this morning you would convince us further, maybe convince us for the first time of your unmatched greatness. That you are the authoritative, sovereign creator. That you are the king of glory. That you are the compassionate deliverer of your people. 
Convince us of your greatness. Burn that upon our hearts and minds. Father, show us our, our flaws. Show us our sin. Show us, show us the rebellion that exists in our lives against you, against your rule, against the claims that you have on us as creator and as king. And so that we might in humility look to your son and receive him by faith, knowing that his life and his death is enough. That he became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Work in our hearts this morning. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ that, that you would give us clean hands and pure hearts as we live uh, as lights in this world, as salt of the earth. May there be something distinct about us, not for our names, but for your glory. So, Father, we pray that your word would take root in our hearts and bring forth fruit for your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.